How many of you had a great time at the Honda Classic? Anybody enjoy the Honda Classic? Well, look at that, almost half of you. My son got me some tickets, and for the second time I went with my wife, and uh, we had a, just a great time, great experience. We followed a Jupiter resident guy, um, uh, Ricky, stick it, make it stick, Ricky, they kept saying, Ricky uh, Fowler, that's right. All the chicks, were fall, all the girls, ladies, I shouldn't say, were following Ricky. He's one with all these bright clothing, so there I was with all the ladies cheering for Ricky Fowler, and he did well. And it was, it was fun, you know. Um, I grew up here. Um, Palm Beach Gardens is the golf capital of the world. Sometimes people don't know that, and I, I never golfed, and it's a good thing. After being there and seeing the, the preciseness these golfers have and all the time they take between shots, if I was golfing, my golf buddies would go crazy because it'd have to be perfect. I'd be just like those guys, you know, and I'd drive them insane. So it's a good thing that I don't golf. But I got this question for you talking about golf. Who is the, the greatest golfer of all time? Jack Nicklaus? Anna Palmer? You know, some, no one's saying Tiger Woods anymore. Tiger, I think, won four Masters, but Jack has won how many? 18. I thought it was six Masters, but I don't know. Anyways... I think we all agree that Jack's the greatest golfer of all time, right? Are we together? He's a local guy here. I guess Tiger is too, but we'll go with Jack. All right. Who is the, uh, now let's talk about a, a real sport, all right? Um, no, no offense, no offense, but, but, but who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Of all time. You know, Lucas. <laughs> Magic Johnson, MJ, Michael Jordan. I, man, I think LeBron is doing phenomenal, isn't he, right now? Miami, 17 in a row, you know. I mean, they are cooking it. All right, who's the, I mean, it seems like there's, like, we can't settle on one there, can we? All right, well, let, how about this one? Who is the greatest hockey player of all time? That's right, I think we agree. You know, he stands in a class all by himself. All right, who's the greatest baseball player of all time? Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, a lot of really great players. All right. Let's see if we can come to consensus on this one. Who's the greatest artist of all time? That's right, Michelangelo. Uh, most would agree with that, the greatest artist of all time. Now, who's the greatest physicist of all times? Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein stands tall to this day as the undisputed champ. Okay, now who's the greatest teacher of all time? Now, before you holler out an answer, let's talk about who were some of the greatest teachers of all time. And let's go way back, maybe like 2,500, no, let's change that to 3,500 years ago, which would be Moses. Many thought Moses was the greatest teacher of all time. Our judicial system is built upon today, built based upon Moses and the law in the Old Testament. And then about a 1,000 years after Moses, a guy came on the scene by the name of Buddha. And uh, about 563 years before Christ. And Buddha, in many ways, was a little bit more of a psychologist, which they didn't exist back then, than a, really a religious leader. He was really into suffering and trying to help relieve us from suffering and had some great teaching. People thought maybe he was the greatest teacher of all time. And then right around Buddha was another guy that when I grew up in school, I used to hear his name all the time. People used to say Confucius says, or Confucius said. I don't hear that anymore today. But about 551, hello, honey. That's my wife. <laughs> yeah, she overslept an hour, you know. No, she was, she was visiting her mother, I'm sure. 
Um, but Confucius was back about, I'm in trouble now. Confucius <laughs> was uh, big about 551 B.C. before Christ. And, um, and then others would say they really believe that the greatest teacher of all time is Muhammad. He was the greatest teacher, some thought. He uh, lived 570 years A.D., and A.D. means in the year of the Lord. So he came about 570 years after the birth of Christ. And he's the founder of Islam. And there's about 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 Muslims living in the world today. And their number is kind of a little misleading a bit. Because if you lived in an Islamic state like Iran, there's 75 million people. Well, that whole 75 million goes towards that number. So whatever, it's a little misleading because they count non-Muslims in Islamic states as part of that number. So about 1.6 million. And no doubt was a very influential teacher. But there's only one teacher who all the other teachers' birthday is dated upon his birthday. You realize that? And that's Jesus of Nazareth. All of civilization is dated around his birth. And the cross on which he died has become the universal, most recognized symbol in the world today, the cross, because Christ died on a cross. Many people refer to Jesus Christ as actually the hinge of history because of his impact and his influence is huge. Now, him as the greatest moral teacher of all time, that's often widely accepted within the church, but that statement Jesus is the greatest moral teacher of all time, is widely accepted outside of the church because of the influence of his teaching. He taught 2,000 years ago, and we're still studying and talking and learning from his teachings. He's widely accepted as the greatest moral teacher of all times. And three weeks from now, about 2.5 billion people are going to be celebrating his resurrection from the dead, his life. And which, by the way, none of the other great teachers were able to pull off that feat. Um, which kind of puts him head and shoulders, you know, above the rest, including Oprah and Dr. Phil, all right? Jesus is kind of in a class all by himself. And wherever this morning you are on your own faith journey, I hope you'll honestly look this morning at, at some of his teachings and their impact on the world. And I think you need to answer that question for yourself. Is Jesus Christ the greatest teacher of all time? Take an honest look. Now, during the times of Christ, there was a guy by the name of, of Nicodemus. He was a religious leader, and he wrestled with that question. In John chapter 3, it says, After dark one evening, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he came to speak with Jesus. Teacher, he said, we all know that, that God has sent you to teach us. He acknowledged that he was a teacher and that he came to teach us. Why? Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. Jesus came teaching and his miracles authenticate his message. His miracles give proof, they give evidence of the origin of his teaching, that he was indeed, you know, God was with us. God was among us. God was present in Christ. And as I have gotten older and older and older, I have become more and more convinced that Jesus is and was the smartest person who ever walked 
the face of this earth. And the smart thing for me to do is to follow his teaching. It's to live by his teaching. And so I call myself a Christian, which means I am living my life. I am choosing to follow after the life of Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to come to your own conclusion. But what I like to do this morning, I like to look at what's known as the most famous teaching in the world. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got your Bible, it's found over in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And he delivered this message on a mount, on Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. And I want us just to look at this passage, to look up, take a couple different uh, passages, verses from that passage. And I want you to wrestle with that as you see his incredible teaching. Is he the greatest teacher of all time or not? See, I think there's two questions before us. The first question is, is Jesus Christ the greatest teacher of all time? And I encourage you to investigate that. And the second question, which is maybe even a stronger question that we need to answer today, is this. Am I following by his teachings? Am I, am I following his teachings? Am I living by or living after his teachings? You see, I'm afraid that most of us are taking the, the brilliance of Jesus Christ for granted because we're not living by his teachings. We say he's the greatest teacher of all time, but we're not taking his teachings and integrating them into our lives. So let's look at the teaching of Jesus Christ as we see him up close and personally. You got your Bible? Turn with me there over to Matthew. And let's begin with verse, uh, verse 22 of, uh, of Matthew chapter 5. I'm telling you, Jesus is teaching. Anyone who so much as, what's the word there? Angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly calling a brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court, thoughtlessly yelling stupid at a sister, and you're on the brink of hell fire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Words kill. Now, isn't that the truth? 2,000 years ago. Now, what is, what is Jesus trying to teach us here? He's trying to teach us to manage our anger constructively. You need to manage your anger constructively. You need to manage your anger in a positive way. It's critical to your emotional, to your physical health. And we know today, 2,000 years later, that that is an undisputed fact. Inappropriate anger affects our health, our relationships, more than any other single factor in our lives. And if anger is not dealt with constructively, it rips apart marriages, it rips apart relationships and families. It destroys friendships, the workplace, churches, society. Today we know that the number one cause of depression is anger. And, and depression is the number one illness in America. We've got so much and we're more depressed than we've ever been. And many psychologists would say that 85% of depression is rooted in inappropriate anger. I mean, Jesus wisely tells us here that we better get in touch with this emotion. We better learn to control our anger. We better learn to control our tongue. Are you going to bring, it says, hellfire into your life? You're going to find yourself in the doctor's office needing a prescription, needing some medication to help you deal with your high blood pressure and a host of other side effects 
that all goes back to not dealing with our anger appropriately. That or we start doing drugs and alcohol, you know, to cope with uh, our anger. It's the side effects of inappropriate anger. And most people really can be placed in one of two categories. Either you're a spewer with your anger or you're a stuffer. Either you're a hider, you know, or you're a hurler. Um, now, if you had to put yourself in one of those two categories, so you're going to have to raise your hand right now. Are you ready? Uh, how, many, how many stuffers do we have here this morning? When it comes to your anger, you kind of stuff it, raise your hands up. Okay. How many of you are hurlers? You're spewers. Looks like we've got more hurlers here, hurlers here, spewers here. I don't know what that means. It's probably not a good sign. But, um, and, and what happens when we have this inappropriate anger building up? Anger itself is not a bad emotion. It's a God-given emotion. But when we hold on to it, it becomes toxic inside of us. It's kind of like you get the flu and you just feel so sick and you just want to barf. And that's what many of you do. You just barf it up on your friends and your loved ones, you know. And you feel better after you spew it all out and you say things you shouldn't say and use words you shouldn't use. I mean, it's all out, but now they've got vomit all over them, right? And they're not feeling too good. I mean, they stink, you know. You might feel better, but they stink. Or maybe you're one of the ones that you got this toxic, inappropriate anger inside of you and you just keep stuffing it and stuffing it and stuffing it. And you're about ready to explode, You're a hider. Jesus is saying here, don't murder the people in your life by not managing your anger in a God-honoring way. I mean, this is brilliant. This is brilliant teaching. Now, on your uh, message outline this morning, there's a compass on there. You see the compass on your sheet there? If you grab that. Um, This is kind of a a word picture. Now, if you notice, the needle on the compass is is pointing where? North. Uh, It's kind of... A word picture of Jesus' teaching and how he wants to point us north. He wants to point us and lead us in the right direction. So when it comes to managing anger constructively in your life, when it comes to aligning this teaching into your life, where would you put yourself on that compass? Get a pen right now and write in a needle for where you are when it comes to this teaching of Christ. Are you off by 5 degrees, 10 degrees, 30 degrees? Some of you are off by 180 degrees. I mean, you're just going in the totally wrong direction and what he's teaching this passage. So take a second and get a pen and evaluate your life as far as are you aligning this truth into your life. Be honest. All right? All right, Jesus continues in his teaching. Verse 23, he says, This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. He's teaching again. This is how I want you to live. If you enter your place of worship and you're about to make an offering, in those days you would make an offering, you'd make a sacrifice. Today we associate it with writing a check or or, or, or giving. So you're coming to church, you're ready to give to God, you're ready to worship God by giving, and you're ready to make an offering. Um, And you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering. Very important you get that, all right? You know, leave your money and then go. So if we ever see you leaving during the offering, we know why you're leaving, by the way. So abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the streets and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. 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 You hear that? Make 
the first move. Make things right with him or with her. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, I mean, he's a real jerk, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail. Now, what is Jesus trying to teach us here? He's trying to tell us to settle our disagreements quickly. Settle your disagreements quickly. Life is too short to stay mad at a friend. Life is too short. Life is too costly to solve all your problems in court. Make the first move. Take responsibility for your part in the problem. Quit making excuses and say you're sorry and move on. Settle your disagreements quickly. I mean, this is incredible advice. Jesus knew that if there is life, there will be strife. If there is motion, there will be commotion. But the best way to live is in peace. Peace with yourself, peace with your spouse, peace with your neighbors. Now, I've had to kind of learn this the hard way. By instinct, I am just a fighter. I love to fight for the rights of the innocent, love to fight for the rights of, of others. Um, and, uh, and the truth is, Jesus says here, you know, life's too short sometimes. Why waste all your money on attorney's fees, you know, court fees? Do the best you can to settle the disagreement quickly. Rarely do you ever win in court. When you have to fight it out in court, that's the American way these days. But it creates so much stress and heartache and lack of sleep. And what it does to your spirit and your soul, Jesus is saying it's just not worth it. Now, Jesus is not talking about governments here. He's not talking about institutions here. He's talking about us as individuals. He's saying, settle your disagreements quickly, quickly. Say the words, I am sorry, I was wrong, let's get this behind us. Can you say that with me? She's wanting you to say that. Let's say that together. You ready? I am sorry, I was wrong, let's get this behind us. I didn't hear everybody say it. All right, you ready? Let's say it together. We got to practice this. We got to settle our disagreements quickly by saying, I am sorry, I was wrong, let's get this behind us. Life's too short. This is brilliant teaching again. Now look again at the compass on your sheet there. And draw a line to reflect where you are in light of this teaching of Jesus. Are you doing your best to, to settle disagreement quickly? Or maybe you're a little trigger happy. <laughs> you know, when it comes to fighting for your rights. It's not fighting for somebody else. You're fighting for your rights. Or maybe you're, you're one of those ones that like to kind of like nurse your hurt with your displeasure. And when someone has hurt you or bothered you, you want to just stay mad at them. You want to make them pay. Well, then you need to put that needle down at 180. You're kind of going in the opposite direction, all right? Jesus says, settle your disagreements quickly. Brilliant advice. Agree? I mean, brilliant advice. All right? He continues. Look at verse 27. He says, you know the commandment which says, be faithful in marriage. But I tell you that if you look at another woman and want her or look at another man and want him, you're already unfaithful in your thoughts. If your right eye causes you to sin, poke it out. Throw it away. 
It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to end up in hell. Strong words of warning. Now, what is Jesus trying to teach us here? He's trying to teach us to diffuse lust immediately. Diffuse lust immediately. Jesus knew how the powerful appetite of sex can destroy our lives, can destroy our relationships, our marriages. So it's better to poke out your eye. It's better to be blind than to be, find yourself trapped and in bondage and addiction to sexual sin. Now, let me be very clear here. Jesus is not anti-sex. God is pro-sex. Christ is pro-sex. God created us to be sexual creatures. He's not saying that you shouldn't be aware of your sexuality. He's not saying you should be naive about being sexually attracted to someone you're not married to. But he's very clearly and explicitly telling us what to do. He's saying, don't play around with lust. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't play around with lust. You will get burnt. You're in danger of hell fire. Now, some of you are thinking that's just ridiculous. I mean, there's nothing wrong with checking out the babes, you know, or, or admiring the beauty of a man or a woman. But that's really not what Jesus is talking about here. He, he's talking about reducing people to sexual objects, to sexual fantasies. He's talking about dehumanizing people for the sake of your own physical pleasure, for your own gain, for your own selfish good. And if you think Jesus is too radical here, I would really challenge you to go do some homework. Read some of the latest research today on where pornography leads and what it does. And pornography is all about feeding lust. And you'll find they have conclusive today. It leads to date rape, sexual molestation, excessive masturbation, child abuse, incest, child porn, prostitution, homosexuality, fornication, all kinds of sexual sins. And if you do the research, you might be a little hesitant to think that Jesus is a little naive. Or better yet, talk to someone who has lived out these so-called sexual fantasies and you'll see how lonely they feel. You'll see how powerless they feel to change. They're addicted to sexual sins, and they feel shameful and ugly, and they're stuck, and they're trapped, and they'd love to change it, but they can't. Talk to them. I mean, why do you think the statistics still show that those who are in monogamous relationships are more likely to be sexually fulfilled than anybody else? I mean, why did Hugh Hefner get married? You know? And I don't think Jesus is too radical here. But maybe he's just a little too close to home. And it's easier to disagree and disregard his teaching than it is to admit and own our problem. Jesus wants us to look at each other as whole people. He wants us to treat the opposite sex with respect and with honor. So he wisely teaches us to diffuse lust immediately. And again, this is so brilliant. Because if we're not careful, we will reduce people to flesh. We'll reduce sex, something that's mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, to just a physical act. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. 
Love and marriage and relationship, it's so much farther than that. And if you find yourself going down that path, stop immediately. All right, now get the compass out. (laughs) Get the compass out and draw your little arrow there. Everybody, you know, don't let anyone see it, right? Okay. Um, Are you reducing whole people to sexual objects? It's amazing. The first service, I saw everybody, you know, trying to hide their little arrow there. And that just shows you that sexual activity is a whole lot bigger than a physical act. There's something inside of us that says this is very private and very personal. And we get drawn into pornography and all those host of different things. You know, that's why there's so much shame involved and so much pain involved. All right, so fill out your your, uh, little compass there. I know you're just going to think about it in your head where it is. Okay. Jesus continues. Look at verse 31. You have heard that the law of Moses, another great teacher. What did Moses teach? A man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a letter of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what is Jesus teaching here? You know, I find people read this verse and they focus on divorce, and that's really not what he's teaching here. What is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching us, he's telling us to stay married. Stay married. Now, please, hear me out, hear Jesus out on this one. You know, before the 1960s, almost everybody agreed with Jesus' teaching here. I mean, it's pretty intuitive, if we're honest that intact families are preferred over single-parent arrangements when it comes to being a family and raising kids. I mean, the truth is today, it's very hard to raise kids. Anybody that has it, has them, would testify. It's very hard to raise kids. And ideally, you need two people to raise kids. You need two people who are really invested in those kids. And when they have your DNA in you, you're invested. You're concerned about their well-being. You should be greatly concerned about their well-being. Now, before the 1960s, when married people fell out of love, when married people were disappointed with each other, when married people didn't fulfill each other's dreams or expectations, for the most part, they looked at the larger picture. And for one reason or another, they chose to stay married. They remembered their vows before God until death do us part. They kept those vows. They remembered their kids or their grandkids And they wanted to do what would be ultimately in their best interest, not just in their own best interest. It was tough for a lot of people in the 40s and 30s and 20s and the 50s. Personality conflicts, religious differences, fighting over money, intimacy issues. But throughout history, study history, people chose to stay married for the greater good. And then came no-fault divorce in the 60s. And millions of families have been divided up by judges. So much so that today, that when someone gets married, they have a 50-50 chance that someday they will stand before a judge and annul and dissolve their marriage. Now, back in the 60s, 
And you go back and study this. The social scientists of the day, the psychologists, they began to build a case that children were much better off in single-parent homes than in two-parent homes where the parents didn't get along. But now, 40 years later, the statistics are in. The facts are in. You can't argue with the facts. And it is truly astonishing the difference it makes on our children when they grow up in a single-parent home. It greatly affects their self-esteem, depression, rage, alcohol and drug use, the suicide rate, even the grades. And newest research shows that it has the greatest impact on our kids when they get into their mid-20s and early 30s and they can't make their own marriages work because mom and dad didn't make theirs work. And I think this is a hard teaching of Jesus here, but I believe he got it right. If you're going to get married, you're going to have to work real hard at staying married. But in the long run, it's worth the work. And I think I've been very honest with you over the years here as your pastor about my own marriage. I haven't tried to sugarcoat it or pretend that everything's perfect between Jan and I. Marriage has been tough at times for Jan and I. You know, we've worked hard at it. We've gotten help over the years. We have learned about commitment and communication and love talk, you know. Uh, We've learned to work through our problems, even when it's hard. And life is not just about my happiness or her happiness. Sometimes life is about doing the right thing. Sometimes life is about honoring God and, and putting Him first. And today, both of us are grateful that we've chosen to follow the advice of Jesus Christ and stay married. Now, that's not always possible. And there are biblical grounds for divorce. And if you're a single parent and you're here this morning, please hear me. And hopefully please hear and understand the heart of Jesus Christ. If you're a single parent, you need to know that you are loved, that you are valued here. And we want to do everything we can within our power to help you with your kids to beat the odds and to beat the statistics. And for your child to grow up feeling loved and cherished and valued and doing well in life and doing well in school and to be prepared for their own marriage. We honor single among us. We value singles among us. God hates divorce. Jesus hates divorce. And why does he hate it? Because he's a good God. And he sees the pain. He sees the ugliness. He sees the shame. He sees what it does in lives and families. And so he hates it. But God does not hate divorcees. Jesus does not hate divorcees. He responds to the hurt in our life with love and with grace. And please know that every single one of you single parents, that's the way we respond to you, isn't to judge you. It's to love you and to support you and to do everything we can through Discovery Land and the Refuge, our student ministry, to help you in raising whole, healthy kids. So we're committed to you. We want to be a a spiritual family to you. Now, take out your compass on this one. All right, come on. How are you doing on this one? Are you committed to staying married? Are you committed? Take that arrow. Write your arrow in. Are you committed? As long as she's looking over your shoulder, you better draw that arrow straight up there, buddy. Okay. Jesus continues his teaching here. He says this, 
Stop judging others and you will not be judged. What is Jesus teaching here? Judge not. Judge not. Today in America, our culture, we've become so cynical, so critical. I mean, civility is totally gone. We're just negative. And I'm sorry to say it, Christians sometimes can become so self-righteous. We have this propensity to think that we have and we own all the truth and anyone that doesn't see it our way is wrong and we're right. And it's so easy if we're honest to jump to conclusions about people, to prematurely put them on trial on our mind, find them guilty in our mind before we know the facts, before we know the truth. Man, I continue to find more and more that when I get close to someone and you see their life and see what went on, then you can understand them. And don't judge them because you just don't know. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what they've lived with. You really just don't know. And so Jesus says, judge not. Judge not. Now get your compass out. How are you doing on this one? How are you doing on loving and accepting people, not wrongfully judging your brothers and your sisters? Draw a little arrow there, all right? Jesus continues. Matthew 6, he kind of brings chapter 5 and 6 to a conclusion. This is real important. Verse 33, he says, but more than anything else, but more, he's summarizing. He said, man, I've just given you all this teaching. But more than all that teaching, more than anything else, put God's work first and do what he wants. Then the other things will be yours as well. What is Jesus teaching here? Pretty simple. Put God first. Put God first in every area of your life. Seek first the kingdom of God. Acknowledge him as your Lord, as the sovereign one in your life as the chairman of your board, the CEO, the president of your life. Anytime you have a decision to make, you you make him first. You ask yourself, what would God want me to do? What would Jesus want me to do? Put worshiping God first. Make it a priority to, to keep the Sabbath, to be at worship. Put God first in your life. Put worshiping him first in your life. You know what Jesus is really asking here? Again, this is so brilliant. Jesus is asking here, are you willing to live by my teaching? I just shared my teaching with you. And he's saying, listen, are you willing to live by my teaching? Will you take the Bible and my teaching and let it become an authority over your life? You see, it's, it's not what I think is right or what you think is right. It's what does Jesus say? What does God say? It's taking the Bible, it's taking the words of Jesus Christ and making it an authority in our life, a filter in our life. And that's what Jesus is asking here. Are you really willing to live by my teaching? If you say I am the world's greatest teacher, then why aren't you living by my teaching? So get your compass out. The most important one here, are you willing to really put God first? Are you really willing to submit your will to his teaching? Are you willing to align your life with his words? All right, draw it on there. Where are you on that one? That's the big one. That's the most important one. Now, this was the response of many people in that crowd that day. 
Chapter 7, 5 through 7, he's finishing his message, and he says this in verse 28. After Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They said, man, this without a doubt is the greatest teacher of all times. They were amazed. Why were they so amazed at his teaching? For he taught as one who had what? Real authority. Quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. You see, Jesus was the greatest teacher of all. And the reason why he was the greatest teacher of all, because he taught with real authority. You see, he just wasn't speaking for God like some of the other teachers we talked about earlier. He was God. It's quite different. It's totally different. It puts Jesus Christ in a league of his own. He wasn't speaking for God. He was God. He is God. And so he spoke the truth, God's truth, God's word. And this morning we've got to choose to get in alignment, to trust it, to accept it, to believe it. And Jesus, he lived what he preached. He did what he said. His life was in alignment with his own words. And he believed what he said so much that he went to a cross and he was crucified. Why? Because he claimed to be God in human flesh. And he was crucified because of it. I encourage you this morning to let the words of Christ become the authority in your life. Can we bow our heads in prayer? And with our heads bowed, can you just join me in praying quietly to yourself and just say, God, I believe I believe that Jesus was and is the greatest teacher of all time. I believe. I put my faith and my trust in him. Can you pray this morning and say, save me from my sins. Save me from my pride. My selfishness, my self-centeredness. I believe that you love me. And I believe that you died for me. And I put my faith in you. And then can we all pray this morning, I choose to align my life with your teaching. And can you pray? God, help me to manage my anger constructively. Can you pray that this morning? God, help me to manage my anger. Help me to... Guard my tongue. God, help me to settle my disagreements quickly. God, help me not to hold on to my hurts. Help me to be quick to own my part of the problem and apologize. God, help me to diffuse lust immediately. God, help me to stay Married. And God help me not to judge others. And God help me to put you first in everything. God help me to live my life under the authority of your teaching. 
God, we thank you so much this morning that you love us and that you just didn't leave us alone to fend for ourselves, that you put on flesh, that you lived among us so that we might know the truth and hear the truth, that our lives might be transformed, that we might move north, we might move true north, we might move towards you. God, we thank you so much for the incredible teaching of Jesus Christ and for his life and for his death and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen.